Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 48 of the Lawyerist podcast, in which we talk to Sharon Nelson and John Simic of Sensei Enterprises about computer security. First, thank you so much to those of you who have already made a contribution to the podcast. It's really awesome to know how you value our time and the effort that we put into this show, but we still need some help from the rest of you. Our sponsors only cover part of the cost of producing this podcast, so we are asking our listeners, that's you, to support it by making a contribution. You already pay 99 cents for a song on iTunes or Amazon or Google Play. If you think this podcast is worth 99 cents, visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast. You can pay for one episode or 100, and your contribution will help us keep the podcast coming every week in 2016. If you want to suggest a topic or give us feedback or uh, give me a compliment or complain about Sam, you can email (laughs) us at email at lawyerist.com. Take a minute to check out our practical and easy-to-use lawyering survival guides at lawyerist.com slash guides, including our new 30-minute WordPress setup guide and our four-step computer security upgrade. You can also just click on guides at the top of the site. Use the coupon code podcast at checkout to get a 50% discount on your order. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You are more productive when you aren't interrupted, and Ruby can help with that. Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and I love being able to trust them to do a great job. You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial. So we're getting to the end of the year, which makes it seem like a time to look back over the year. Uh, what was your favorite post or series of posts from 2015? Um, I think every year my favorite post is our best law firm websites contest that we usually run in January and February. Um, I love seeing cool new designs and creative ways people are using the internet to market their law practices. And we also always highlight a couple of ridiculous ones that are always fun to see. Yeah, my favorite of all time is probably that crazy one where it's like a wizard by a waterfall with a unicorn and... Yes. I'll never get tired of that one. Video game MIDI music in the background. Yeah, that was great. I also like the ones that have lots of, like, explosions or injuries, things like that. (laughs) Well, and actually, to try and get people excited for um, next year's contest, which will launch in just a couple of weeks, uh, I I posted a thread in the Lawyerist Lab, our forum, and so if you want feedback on your site... I'd be happy to tell you what's what needs work and or what's great with the idea that maybe we can discover a few websites that are ready for the contest that we don't know about already. But look for that call for nominations on January 1st, and you can nominate great law firm websites for the next year's contest. Do you have a favorite post from the year? Uh, I, I have more of like a favorite theme from the year. Ooh. <laughs> um, we, uh, we started putting a lot of emphasis in 2015 on tech competence, uh, because we think it's about damn time lawyers started paying attention to it and stopped glorifying being a Luddite. Uh, and so we've posted a lot of stuff about that from you know user guides on password security to examples of what tech competence really might look like and examples of how it's gone bad. Um, we've, we got our security guide up there, and I think it's some of our best work this year. And so it's, it's sort of a, a theme that we've been uh, emphasizing, and I really like that theme. 
Can I throw you an unplanned curveball? Bring it. Do you have a favorite podcast episode from our first year of this podcast? Uh, you know, I, I do. Um, uh, well, maybe maybe it's two or three, but uh, I'll try and just highlight a couple. Um, I really liked talking to Brian Tannebaum, uh, in part because he... We've we had sort of a uh, online we sort of heckle each other and it was really fun to sit down and just have a conversation and find out that we're really pretty much on the same page about a lot of things um, and I thought that was just a really good podcast too. Um, Ed Walters is r- one of my favorite people to talk to and talking to him about artificial intelligence and law and technology was just a really fun podcast. Um, and honestly, I'm surprised by how much fun I had talking about document assembly last week with Baron Henley. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So there, there, there's a few. I mean, I, I love doing this podcast, but um, those are some of the ones that I think were really, um, oh, you know, in the Legal Zoom podcast. Uh, I'll shut up because I'll just keep going. I think hey. my favorites are all the <laughs> ones where, especially at the beginning, where we made a point of swearing. Yeah, no, that's those, true. Those are my favorite episodes. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks for that curveball. I like that. Uh, Well, now that we've gone over our favorite posts, here's my conversation with Sharon and John. Hi, I'm Sharon Nelson. I'm the president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics information security and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. I write the, um, I guess, award-winning blog these days. It's been named to the ABA Blog Hall of Fame. It is called Ride the Lightning. And I am a co-host of the Legal Talk Network podcast series called The Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology, as well as Digital Detectives. Uh, I now have had 16 books, almost, uh, published by the ABA, uh, waiting on a couple of them for early 2016, uh, and speak a lot all over the country and the world. And I was the president of the Virginia State Bar in 2013-2014, and I'm a past president of the Fairfax Law Foundation. And I'm John Simic. I'm the vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Um, I'm a digital forensics investigator. I'm certified in that. Also um, hold a CISSP uh, security certification. Uh, So we do cybersecurity as well. Uh, I do expert witnessing. Uh, I write. Sharon and I co-host the Digital Detectives uh, podcast on Legal Talk Network. Um, I haven't written nearly as many books as Sharon has, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think it's one less. Uh, but just one. <laughs> we, we, just one. We lecture all around the country and and in other countries as well. We've done, done several other foreign countries. Um, but generally, I, I'm the the technologist guy. <laughs> gotcha. And I mean, I think your your other podcast is called Digital Detectives, which is a pretty good way of describing what you do, right? I mean, correct. it's it's yep. it's a perfect way. I mean, we we literally it's piece by painful piece trying to uncover the significant evidence in a case. Uh, and when we when we get it, we crack open a bottle of eighteen year old single malt and we sing, "We are the champions." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I want to talk about computer security and cybersecurity, and I, I'm kind of tired of. The the cyber thing, but but we, I want to talk about that stuff. Um, and in particular, uh, this question came up at a recent seminar I was giving on technology competence. I was talking about email security and my, my view that people should be using a secure portal to communicate with clients. And a lawyer who is a friend of mine stood up and challenged me to hack into his email right then and there because he didn't agree uh, with my assessment of the threat. Um, 
and and while I'm confident I can figure all that stuff out pretty easily, I'm kind of curious, like how how easy is it to target a specific lawyer's email and how would you go about it? Well, I guess, I guess Sam, Sam, I'd have to ask first, is that guy still your friend? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, seriously, though, it's 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 possible to do it. And then you've got to think about the, the practical side of it. Um, certainly, if you're uh, an employee at an ISP and you can gain access to the communication stream, then tapping it is, is not very difficult at all. Um, wireless is very easy to, to intercept. So if you're doing email communication over a wireless cloud that's not encrypted, uh, that's not secured, then, and this happens all the time, you can lift that data. I actually, oh, I don't know, Sharon, what was it? Maybe about six, eight years ago, I demoed that at ABA Tech Show. Where oh, I was less, less, less than that. Wouldn't you no, use I'm the talking, pineapple? No, no, not the pineapple. I'm talking about when okay. I, I actually sniffed the wire and uh, there was clear, ah. clear text transmissions um, and a particular lawyer's user ID, uh, the server that he was connecting to, his password was shown. I didn't show the audience, obviously, that. But um, so that is very is fairly common to do, especially since we have a lot of hotspots and, and open wireless networks around. So that's probably the very most the most common way. Uh, at least that we see where, where uh, email is intercepted. The other common way is with Apple products because of the iCloud synchronization that occurs. If you know someone's credentials, and we've had several cases that are this where you get, um, you know, disgruntled, uh, you know, ex-girlfriend or whatever it is, and they happen to know what your Apple ID is, and um, you can just register a device. Mm-hmm. to to the iCloud, and it synchronizes all that data a- across all the various devices. Now, mm-hmm. Apple has since upgraded, and they've changed things since the CelebGate fiasco so that you get a notification when a new device is registered. Um, but so what, the, what they were doing in, in the cases that we've had is they'll, they'll take some, some iPad or some other iPhone and then actually register that device to the target's iCloud account and therefore, they're cloning it. And that's also how they set people up, too, where we've had, hmm. uh, where they send text messages purporting to come from someone else. We see that a lot in family law. So, <laughs> Well, and speaking of family law, uh, you know, the, the easiest way to intercept somebody's emails, I've always felt, is not, has nothing to do with tech. It has to do with somebody else who has access to the same computer and can just sit down in front of it and read your emails. That, that's correct. Yep. Or, 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 or know the login cr- credentials. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And, and frequently you find people share log, login credentials. And once you've shared with one, who knows how many uh, other people have been shared with. <laughs> right. Uh, and and this is something that I'm not, I'm not sure lawyers appreciate because it's one of the lawyers are in this category of tech is hard. And so people don't just go around doing hard things. But um but sniffing packets at a coffee shop is incredibly easy, I've found, because I wanted to know how to do it one day, and so I Googled it, and <laughs> 15 seconds later, I was looking at what other people were, what websites they were browsing. Yep, yep. That, that's my point. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and this is the thing that I, I talk to lawyers about sometimes is it's, this is a hobby that some people do. Right, like it's it. Oh. It isn't necessarily even targeted. Somebody may just be sitting in the coffee shop or the library or the courthouse sniffing packets just for the heck of it. 
They oh, might yeah. be, but they might be. But let's face it: a lot of people who are criminals do exactly that, or mm-hmm. you know, they, they'll they'll set up a hotspot, name it Free Fairfax Internet, and people will go there because it's free. And uh, they're they're trolling. I mean, they're trolling for data, and they know what they can sell it for. And it's about two dollars for a credit card and twenty five or so for medical information. So big gap. Uh, but that's what they're looking for, and that's how they make their money. Sure, and just in public spaces or. Um, well, okay. So with that in mind, how important do you think it is to encrypt email? Or do you think lawyers ought to learn how to encrypt their email? Well, there was a day when I would have said no. You know, that's that's crazy. It, you know, everybody emails. Uh, but the times have changed. Uh, people are targeting now. Uh, we do, as lawyers, we certainly have our ethical duties, 1.1 and 1.6 are, are rules that we need to abide by. Fifteen states have now adopted the ABA model rules, uh, more or less, and more are going to certainly jump on the bandwagon. So Texas has published a really interesting opinion. It's uh, opinion number 648. And I think it's going to be followed by a lot of other states. And it basically suggests that you need to encrypt where appropriate, uh, if I can condense it to a ridiculously short version, but that, that's about what it says. And it does give some examples, so it's worth reading. Uh, what we have found is that encryption in the old days was extremely hard. You had to exchange public and private keys. It was very intimidating. Lawyers didn't understand it. They hated it. They didn't want to learn anything about it. And today, things have changed. Now, encryption is fast, it's easy, it's inexpensive, it's less than $10 per seat per month with well, some of the tell good me, programs. So I want to interrupt you for a second. Tell me more about that because the last uh, the last I heard um, about email encryption was that uh, when Ed Snowden was trying to communicate with the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation security expert, um, they actually screwed it up first. And, and I, I guess my stance has been uh, you can't possibly ask your average lawyer who can't even set up their own email account how to encrypt email when the world's top security experts have difficulty doing it. But it sounds like you're talking about something different. We are now. We're, yes. we're now talking yep. about a, a whole different thing where you have, and, and I'm not endorsing any particular product, but I'm most familiar with Zixcorp, and that's Z-I-X-C-O-R-P. Um, it, it Basically, you need somebody who does information security or advanced IT to set it up and configure it for you. But after that, there it integrates with Outlook, and there's a button that says encrypt and send. Uh, any lawyer can click on a button that says encrypt and send. They don't need to understand anything about it except that it's encrypting it before as it is sent. Um, so that's really a good thing. You can choose to have it encrypt everything that you transmit via email, or you can make the selection yourself so that when you try to calendar an appointment, which is not exactly confidential data, that you don't encrypt it. And we have it set up that way. But some people are just afraid they'll forget, so they send out everything encrypted. And and it's just it's so easy. It's so cheap. Why would you send out confidential case data or, or confidential client data without that benefit when that's what clients now want? And that's that's really what's driving it. So it sounds, uh, it sounds sort of like a client, uh, a secure communication portal that just sort of latches on to Outlook. Do, does the recipient have to also have it installed or how does that work? No, no, you can, there, John, maybe you can explain the process. Well, how, how Zixcorp operates, and, and a lot of them work this way, is that the, the key management is what they deal with. So the exchange server, which we have in our case, um, by default will communicate using TLS, transport layer security. So the message then leaves our server using TLS, so it's encrypted, to the Zix service. 
what Zix then does is says, who's the recipient of this message? If the recipient can also accept a, a connection via TLS, an encrypted connection, then it's delivered directly to the user's uh, email server and su- subsequently their inbox. If the user, so they don't, and then they mo- they ox- they modify the message to put uh, like a little graphic or something in there. Some, some mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact words. It says this message was securely transmitted using Zixcorp, whatever, something like that. Yep. Um, so that's how the the recipient sees that it's encrypted the entire way. If they cannot receive the message via, via TLS, then they receive a message with a link that says you have a message waiting. Da da da. You. Click on that. You then log into the Zix servers. Uh, it's a free user ID. You know, you create your own ID and password, and then you retrieve the message from that server. Gotcha. That's how they operate it. But I think what what you were talking about, Sam, earlier with the Snowden and the EFF, I don't know the particulars of that. But I, I do think it was that, PGP. Well, I know that there's a there's a exchange of uh, public private keys that occurs because when on the EFF web, website, if you go to any folks there, they actually pu- uh, publish their public key there so that you can then take that public key and integrate it into your email client. It's that exchange of those public keys that has to occur before you send that message that Sharon was talking about before. That's the hard part. That's why encryption um, was not used until services like Zix came along to make it very, very easy. Gotcha. Now, is the, does the Zix software, is that cross-platform or is it Windows only? Um, the plug-in to Outlook is Windows only. Okay. But 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 the service it, Zix itself, you know, forget the plugin. Um, the the uh, the service is that you transmit your message to their servers via a secure method using TLS, and then they handle it. Okay, so I don't need the plugin to use it. Correct. I gotcha. Okay, very cool. Um, we we kind of so we kind of mentioned this earlier, um, but I think that. I think what my friend was really getting at when he challenged me on the email thing was who is really trying to spy on us anyway? Because people who are, uh, you know, people who are illegally intercepting it just because they're they're scrubbing uh, or they're I'm sorry they're trying to browse and grab credit card information or private information to use uh, is one thing. Like, do we really have to worry about our opponents going after our data? Or uh, I mean, who who is it that we're afraid of? <laughs> Well, the, the 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 first and the biggest group are the cyber criminals, no question about it. So they're they're going to go after everybody, large, small, it doesn't matter. Two per person divorce law firm has plenty of data that they can sell. Uh, there are the hacktivists. Uh, they those are hackers with a political agenda. Uh, Anonymous, of course, is is the one that's probably best known. Um, there are the state sponsored hackers, and of course, the United States is one of the biggest of those, uh, along with China, Russia, uh, Korea, and their number of people who are well known for their state sponsored hacking uh, and and they we know the NSA has monitored communications of a law firm not in respect to terrorism but in respect to uh, economic neg- trade negotiations so hmm. that was in the Snowden revelations and recently we have seen two cases Sam that really struck 
home where law firms are accused, not yet found guilty, but accused of having hired hackers in order to hack into the opposing counsel's firm. Uh, and that is very disquieting. And, and in one case, I remember the, uh, the way the court found out was that this story. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't know if it's funny or terrifying, but the, (laughs) but, but the counsel for one side had the intake file, uh, for a client from the other side's law firm. And the judge said, this looks like the other side's confidential data. Where did you get this? Uh, and if you remember Jackie Gleason in the Honeymooners, when he was really confounded, he used to go, humana, humana, humana. And, and that's pretty much what this guy did. And he finally, when he stopped stuttering, just said he didn't know. Um, and, but then uh, this law firm has now been charged. And it will be very interesting to see what happens with those cases. But yes, I do believe that there are unscrupulous law firms who will hire hackers uh, based on these two recent stories, uh, it would appear to be true that that's, that is happening. So we got a lot of people out there that want our data, so we can't ignore security in the way we once did. Even five years ago, it was nowhere near as dangerous as it is today. And I think where most lawyers' minds go immediately when, when the, the topic of uh, intercepting attorney-client communications comes up is, well, does that void the attorney-client privilege? And that's not even what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is your duty to safeguard your client's information, right? That's correct. And and if you aren't safeguarding it, and, and you may never find out that opposing counsel ha- has all of your case files. They just may use them to, you know, kick your ass in court. Uh, and and you'll lose, and it was your fault because you never bothered to protect it. Well, and of course, the people who did this may be criminally charged uh, if they are found to to be guilty of this, and they're certainly uh, very likely to be disbarred. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. there, there's all kinds of ramifications here, but I, I think you'll find that everybody knows there are only two kinds of law firms: those who have been hacked and those who will be hacked, uh, and maybe a third kind: those who will be repeatedly hacked, because right. we, we we have seen that as well. So <laughs> it, it's 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 really been a a wake up moment, and we are really seeing more than anything else when we lecture so often and more often than not what they want. Although we have many topics, but what they want is how lawyers can secure their data. But what now? Uh, lots of law firms have their own security people, and then um, and then everybody picks up their devices and heads home and connects to their home wireless networks, and maybe they let their kids use their iPad, and uh, that seems like it presents a whole world of problems. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but you know, at the at the large firm level, they have mobile device management, and that those kinds of very expensive systems, which cannot be afforded by the the, the solo small and some many by our readers, size yeah. firms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, th- those are okay, but at the at the lower end, bring your own devices, bring your own disaster. So you know, if you're going to let people travel around and you're not going to manage the mobile devices you are just asking for penetration what you know i just saw this is kind of uh side side note here but um i just saw that usb devices are the source of something like 80 percent of computer intrusion where people are just happily plugging in usb drives into their computer and stuff's loading and doing things and well i don't believe the 80 percent number for a minute not for one minute but i do agree that usb devices are they're they are a big problem. I, I'm sure I made the, got the number wrong, but it was it was a substantial portion of intrusion was just people picking up devices and plugging them in. Apparently, uh, oh yeah, well, and and getting 
getting uh, flash drives from conferences that are you know made overseas that come with a little bit extra. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe speaking of overseas, um, I, hotels. That's just terrible, aren't they? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can secure yourself um, if you well, – you don't want to use a business center, obviously, because that's – like any public computer, that will have an average of seven pieces of spyware on it. So you don't want to use that. But mm-hmm. if you connect via a, a VPN, a virtual private network, uh, you can be secure within a hotel. You just, you just need to be running over an encrypted channel. Well, I want to, I want to mention though that even though you're using a VPN and I, and I think there's a, there's this false sense of security that there's two issues with using VPN. Number one, it's got to be properly configured. So you don't want to do what's called a split VPN where part of your traffic, uh, let's say for DNS requests, whatever is, is using the hotel's providers and then hmm. your encrypted communication back to your law firm is going through the tunnel. You don't, do not want that because what can happen in that case is that the DNS servers can get compromised and therefore they can reroute your traffic without your knowledge right. to, to bad places. So you want which to, is a, which is exactly what lots of hotels do ostensibly for yep. benign reasons, but often not. Yes. So when you're, when your your IT folks are configuring your VPN, it should be configured so that all of your traffic, including DNS requests and all that stuff, go through that VPN tunnel. Um, but the other, the second point is that, especially with regards to hotels or, or you know, public Wi-Fi spots, is you are vulnerable. And, and lawyers, I, and a lot of people, not just lawyers, I don't think realize that until the point that you activate your VPN and get that going, that there's a potential um, compromise occurrence in that, in mm-hmm. that early login point. So you need to t- make sure you've got certain steps in that you're using HTTPS when you're getting to the point where you need to, to authenticate, things like that, and it's not clear text. Interesting. You know, I so I, I use a VPN, and and um, and I've talked to other lawyers who use it, and there's this tendency because VPNs can sometimes screw things up, right? You've got a a hotel Wi-Fi that refuses to allow you to not use its DNS servers, and so your VPN won't connect. And I see lawyers go, "Oh well, I just won't use it." Whereas I, I think <laughs> the better advice is. If it isn't allowing you to use your VPN, that means it's probably dangerous and you should not use it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I'm, I, I don't, we tend not to use a um, hotel except mm-hmm. for our, our secure email communications because we know that's encrypted all around. But mm-hmm. generally, um, we'll use hotspots. We'll use our mobile phone. Which, is, which is kind of a, a totally acceptable alternative to a yep. VPN. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we've got, we've got, we've talked about kind of the two of my, the three security measures I think are now basic security, which is uh, you need a secure communication method, um, some form of encrypted email or communication. Uh, you should have a VPN or your own hotspot that gives you a secure internet connection. Uh, and the third one is encryption, right? Uh, disk encryption. Hardware encryption, of course, yes. Uh, and, and that's what you, one of the things you find most often in terms of breaches is that somebody, uh, leaves a, uh, a, a hard disk, a, a, some sort of a backup media on a light rail <laughs> that, that happened in Baltimore and mm-hmm. another, another one was in a locked trunk. But yeah, these things are, are lost or stolen all the time. And to not encrypt those is just crazy. Because people don't realize that their computer is basically a big USB drive. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, that's true. 
Well, Sharon, you just you just saw it at the Las Las Vegas airport when we oh were yeah, there guy a few left a guy ago, left his right? laptop, and uh, <laughs> fortunately, the cleaning woman found it, and she uh, turned it over to security, who took it to Lost and found. It. And I actually saw the very relieved gentleman coming to look for his laptop, and they they told him it was in the Lost and Found, and he took off at a, a gallop <laughs> to retrieve it because God knows what was on it. <laughs> I bet. But I I have found in in the ladies' room, I found. Um, an unlocked uh, phone from SAIC, and I don't think they would have been pleased that an unlocked phone. What's SAIC? Uh, it, it's a huge government contracting corporation, mm. so they, they would not have been at all pleased had they known that she had no password on her phone. I mean, is it fair to say that uh, secure communication, uh, VPN or mobile hotspot, and disk hardware encryption are pretty much basic security that every lawyer should have now that that's been kind of the drum I've been beating and I'm I'm wondering if I should be adding anything to that no I think it, I think that's pretty pretty good um, as, as a starting point but but also realizing that there are some things that and it kind of gets into that whole you know protect the, the confidential information um, deal well two-factor authentication you should be enabling wherever it's possible mm-hmm. um, but that there's a, there's some there's some things tools that are out there that lawyers already use and own that they don't know I think can be used to protect their data as an example if you put a password on a word document an open password it encrypts the contents of that word file so hmm. i've always wondered about that it it actually encrypts it it's not just yeah, a it encrypts. Yep, an obstacle it, it encrypts it Yep. But, but you, um, you know, John, the number one and number two things that they do wrong, um, number one is they don't apply promptly. They don't apply security updates. updates yeah. And they, they, they yep. take the IT pe- people's word for it that everything is cool, but they don't ask for reports about patching and updating. And that's crazy. And the other thing is that lawyers who are cheap and who hate learning new things, uh, they refuse to uh, take the out-of-date, so- so- excuse me, unsupported software um, when it goes out of support and therefore receive no security updates. They refuse to get rid of it because it does still work and yes it does still work but it's not secure um, and they don't want to learn something new cough cough windows xp yeah cough cough <laughs> indeed and we're i think we're still at about 20 percent of of lawyers still have xp machines in their offices which were gaping security sieves before it before microsoft stopped supporting it oh amen <laughs> um so let's say so let's say i'm doing uh well, tell me this. What's the greatest security threat that you see to lawyers? The one that's most <laughs> successful is spear, is spear phishing. Oh, the lawyers uh, themselves. And, and <laughs> the, well, ultimately, that gets that, that is the answer because yeah. the, the, the people are so stupid that they will click on an attachment or a link within an email uh, and they won't, you know, this w- will not be something that they would have been expecting, an email from somebody. And, and they're, they're not even thinking how easy it is for uh, an email address to be spoofed. They're not looking for an extra L or one less L. Uh, in the email address that it's come or the domain that it's coming from, they're just not observant and thinking. Every time you look at an email that for some reason it you know it it trips the alert 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 danger Will Robinson, you know it is really time to think about whether you want to click on anything. Uh, and people don't, they just don't, and they're totally unaware of drive by, drive by malware where you just visit a website and it downloads the malware. They don't understand that. Mm-hmm. So you said spear phishing too, though, and and tell. 
I'm not sure I know exactly what that is. Tell me what that is. Well, regular fishing, and that's P-H-I-S. Mm-hmm. Um, regular fishing is when you send out to everybody, a whole bunch of people, uh, a, a an email saying you've got to update your bank account for some bank that you have no account in. And unbelievably, people do that. Stu- that's just I'm stuck regular. in Nigeria, right? <laughs> yeah, right. 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 The, 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 those are all fishing. But spear fishing is targeted. So now they know something about you. And sometimes they're very sophisticated. And a, a recent example is they, they knew who had the authority to do the electronic transfers at the law firm's bank. Uh, and they knew the, the nickname of the man who could authorize those transfers. And she receives a note saying to transfer money. And it comes from him and it's signed with his nickname. Uh, and so she believes that she's authorized to do that and does. Uh, so those kinds of things are very sophisticated. Not all of them, but more and more, the English is better, the technique is more advanced, uh, and there's been advanced reconnaissance. We have seen that here, where we were attacked and people were trying to get in using uh, our first names or, you know, first initial, last name. So they had done some reconnaissance, but that, that was a clumsy attack compared to spearfishing, where they really go to some time and trouble to figure stuff out, looking at your website, looking at your LinkedIn account, whatever hmm. it is. They're, I mean, they're really, they're really studying up before they attack. The other thing to keep in mind, especially for lawyers, is it's, as Sharon said, the advanced reconnaissance and, and gathering of the information is is fairly simple because a lot of a lot of your court fly, filings are public record. Mm-hmm. So now we know the name of the case. We know who the attorneys of record are because it's it's part of the filings. And so if I want to target you, I just go on your website. I know the firm. I find your email address because that's pretty prominent across all law firms that they publish that. And I send a message as if it's coming from opposing counsel concerning that case. And then stick some, you know, bad stuff in the in the email. The bottom line is it's easier to to get somebody to give you something than it is to break into their computer. Oh yeah, much easier. <laughs> or or to tr- or to just transfer the money to you instead of trying to go through to the trouble of figuring out how to do it yourself. That is that is true. And and you know, still today, if if you call up and say that you're with such and such support company and that you you need to fix something on the network and you need their ID and password, the IRS does this test every year and every year roughly a third of people give away their ID and password. <laughs> so, it's just amazing. Now, I I would say training and and we use that word a lot. Training will go a long way uh, toward helping the situation. But law firms are very reluctant to do training, or at least they used to be because of the loss of productivity hours. I think they now understand that the loss of money from a data breach <laughs> far outweighs any amount of money they expend on training. And so now most most larger law firms are, in fact, training at least once a year, if not more. And they're actually sending around spear phishing emails, which are bogus, but they want to see how many people click on them. And and so it's a kind of test and they run those checks and people who fail those tests, they have consequences these days. It's an amazing turnaround. That's great. Uh, let, me, let me close by asking each of you, um, what is the one thing that most solo and small firm lawyers aren't doing that you think they should start doing a week ago, if not, if not a, a year ago, that they should have been doing for a while? I, I think probably the, the, the biggest thing that they should be doing um, is making sure they're using a different password on every single system. Uh, and, and well, maybe even take it a step further, having a password configured. 
uh, mm-hmm. you know, for some devices. Uh, but, you know, we're at the point now where I think we're, it's absolutely required that we have a password manager in order to, to hold and manage and, and secure, you know, have that secure vault to hold all those unique passwords, very strong passwords. Because, uh, you know, despite what, pe- what you may read or hear, passwords are not dead. They're, they're here. They're here for a while. Yet, uh, we're hope- thankfully, we're moving more and more to two-factor authentication. So that, that password and then something else that you know or that, you know, text message that you get. But all too often, and I, I know we see it in all our, our clients, we have quite a large number of clients that are solo small firms. They're using the same darn password across multiple environments. And, man, that, once, once that gets compromised, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite password manager, Jen? I, I use, yeah, I do. I, I use uh, eWallet. It's a commercial product. Uh, but the reason I like it is because I hold the data. Uh, mm-hmm. It synchronizes across all, all my mobile devices. So they make a, you know, a, a, a piece to, for iOS. They make one for even BlackBerry and for, uh, you know, Android. So the, the password vault then is on my phone. It synchronizes to my phone as well as on my computer or multiple computers. But it doesn't go to the cloud. So I've sort of removed the risk of the, even though it's encrypted, it's encrypted vault. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have, you know, a lot of cloud providers that have data that's been encrypted, but they've been compromised. And um, and users' credentials have been, you know, divulged because they didn't use very strong credentials. So I, that's my personal favorite. I don't like to put that kind of data in the cloud. I I'd, I'd want, want to have control of it. Gotcha. Sharon, what's the what's the one thing that you don't see lawyers doing that you wish they would would be doing? I, I think that they fail to understand how quickly the threats and the responses to the threats uh, evolve over time. So what they need to do is they need to find not you know not some package ninety nine dollars for all the CLE you can eat, but they need to find really qualified cybersecurity speakers, especially those who give practical tips. Usually for in, in the case of your listeners, probably solo, small, mid, and they need to attend at least one such class each year. Uh, and that will keep them somewhat up to date. Uh, and it's helpful too if they follow somebody, uh, who posts a lot on, on whether it's LinkedIn or has a blog, you know, Twitter, somebody who it, they value their advice on cybersecurity because again, they're in the business of doing that and sharing information. And that will help them keep somewhat more current with what's going on because most of them, when, when we start talking, their mouths drop open like they want to catch, you know, a bushel of flies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, they, they don't get it. And, and they are really said that the number one comment is you guys scared the crap out of me uh, after a session. <laughs> Which and is I good. guess it's, well, it's sort of a compliment. <laughs> um, but, you know, really, that would be, that would be very helpful in bringing them along and keeping them current. In other words, uh, it's fine if you want to be your own cybersecurity person, but you have a duty to do a decent job at it if that's your, your, the way you're going to do it. Well, you do, but you also probably, once you listen to somebody speak, you're going to end up hiring somebody to come in and right. do some measure of this work because it is beyond the can of most most lawyers. They're, this is not what they went to law school to do. And unless they're into technology on the side, they're not going to be competent to configure their systems, their networks, the way they need to be configured. John and Sharon, thank you so much for being with us. Um, really enjoyed it. Very informative. Sam, thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. And it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. 
Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.